Cannabidiol, CBD. This specific plant compound has made its name as a viable treatment option for many health conditions. However, so many of us don't really understand it. There's a huge need for health consumers, scientists, and physicians to learn the intricacies of this important medicine. Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Adam Rindy. I'm your host of the One Thing Podcast. In this episode, I welcome Dr. Nick Jacomez, a well-known scientist and cannabis industry leader, onto our show. Dr. Jacomez is a neuroscientist and an analytical expert in the world of plant medicine. Through his work at Leafly, he has helped people learn the science behind cannabis and how to apply that for specific health outcomes. This is part one of a two-part series where we dive into cannabidiol. In this episode, we'll look at the endocannabinoid system and its intricate ways it helps our body regulate homeostasis. We outline how cannabis, CBD, and THC may interface with the system to influence health. We also discuss lifestyle and diet measures that influence the endocannabinoid system. I hope you learn as much as I did, and it sets you up for even further learning in part two. So without delay, I welcome you to my discussion with Dr. Nick Jacomas. Dr. Jacomas, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. We're very excited to have you on today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Well, we have a lot to cover today, and um, it was great catching up before we went live and learning more about what you're up to. And um, I'm glad you're safe right now and um, doing okay with all that's going on with uh, COVID-19. And I'd like to just get into some information about our topic today, if we can. The um, first thing I'd love to hear about is you have such a um, profound background in the um, cannabis industry and science and research. Can you tell us what brought you into this field? Yeah, I can. Um, one, you know, before I was working at Leafly um, and before I was in the cannabis industry, um, I was doing a uh, I was in academia, so I was working on a PhD in systems neuroscience at Harvard University. So that's what I was doing immediately before this. And in many ways, um, you could almost say it's it's less about how did I go from science into cannabis, and in a way, I almost went from cannabis and, and plant medicine into science because um, it was actually in many ways my interest in in cannabis and psychedelics and psychoactive compounds that actually got me interested in neuroscience in the first place. So in some ways I feel like I came back to it. But um, after I was finishing my PhD, um, I was really interested to, um, to go into data science and do that type of work, to go into um, the cannabis industry in particular because it was new at the time, it was growing very fast. Um, I was hearing a lot about it. And um, because I had that longstanding interest in cannabis and plant medicines, and because the industry um, looked like a, a new and interesting place um, to look. Um, I started. I started talking to people in the industry towards the end of my PhD. And long story short, I ended up meeting someone from Leafly. Um, and Leafly was an app that I actually had already been using in my personal life for maybe a year and a half or, or two years. And it was one of the only technology companies that that seemed to be doing interesting things with data in the cannabis space. And I ended up meeting someone at a medical conference in Boston. And um, the timing was just right. So I sort of jumped into the industry right as I was finishing my PhD back at Harvard. And I moved out West and I've been there for almost four years since. And I've been doing a lot of exciting things at Leafly with cannabis data and understanding the, the chemistry of cannabis and cannabis products, understanding how that connects to um, what consumers want, what consumers are looking for, both on the recreational and the medical side, and sort of connecting all the dots between the chemistry of the plant, the composition, the chemical composition of, of products that people can buy legally now and, and the needs, the desires and the behaviors that that connect to the human side of this. So I've been I've been working on all of those types of things in my time at Leafly the last few years. Well, that's fascinating. I'd love to ask you a little bit more about that. So it's it's really interesting to hear that you had a interest in plant medicine prior to going into the science. Um, can you tell me where that started from and like, how far back does that go? Um, yeah, that's actually a good question. 
Um, I typically don't get asked that specific question, so I haven't really talked about this too much. Um, it, it actually goes very far back, um, you know, over 10 years um, to when I was when I was a young adult. Um, and I would say in many ways, my interest in this area started with an early experience I had with psilocybin, which which is the active ingredient in in psychedelic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And I would say long story short, um, when I had that experience, it, it was the first experience of that kind that I had. And I was relatively young at the time. So when I had that experience, I, you know, I was a young, confident person who thought they had, you know, pretty much a, a good grip on reality and how the world worked. Um, and I thought I had, had things figured out, which is not uncommon for someone who's young and relatively naive. And, you know, I took what was probably a, a relatively high dose of, of psilocybin at the time. And I had not had experience with a psychedelic like that before. And at, after when I went through that experience, and especially afterwards, in retrospect, it, it just kind of completely turned turned me inside out, because I, re I realized that there was this spectrum of conscious experience that was available and could be experienced, but that I was completely unaware of before that point. And, mm -hmm. you know, from experiences like that, and from my experiences with cannabis, I just became very interested in the nature of consciousness, and especially how psychoactive compounds can perturb consciousness, and put you into states of experience that are very, very unlike what you would have under normal baseline circumstances. And so I spent a lot of time when I was younger, both on my own time and also in my time as, as a student, um, as an academic, um, studying you know, psychoactive drugs, how they impact the brain and body, and how that connects to things like the nature of mind. And, and so those types of experiences really sort of propelled me to learn about how animals were built through genetics. And that was a lot of my focus in undergraduate studies. Um, and also how the mind is built, um, both, both how the brain develops and evolves over time and how it functions to produce behavior, cognition, and emotion. And, and that was really um, my, my interest going into graduate studies in neuroscience. Wow. That so is I had, fascinating. Yeah. I had this interest in the connection between psychoactive plant medicines and mind throughout my academic journey. And then I kind of went went um, later on and made the jump between academia and industry um, to go into the cannabis space. Excellent. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's, it's really profound when you have been personally um, impacted and, and it's like driving you to study and just understand like what you actually experienced and then you know, bringing in your study of plants with your study of neuroscience. Now I, now I get the connection. That's, that's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, no, so, it was. Um, yeah, it, it's been it's been an interesting journey um, and a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, we want to start with uh, talking about the uh, endocannabinoid system as a whole. I thought you know a good place for us to start is just to kind of get the the landscape of the topic, and I think talking about the ECS and just how it's organized and the different components of it would be a great place for us as listeners and learners to start. Yeah, absolutely. So the endocannabinoid system or the ECS, um, we can abbreviate it as ECS, is a really, really crucial and foundational system in the body. So let's talk about what it is and what it does. And then I think we should talk about how that connects, not just with the, the biology of it, um, but also other aspects of lifestyle that are important for health, including diet and exercise and sleep. So the ECS itself is a very critical regulatory system in the body. Usually when you talk about the ECS or you learn about the ECS, you are going to be talking about the concept of homeostasis or homeostatic regulation. And that's a crucial concept in biology. It goes back a long time. And it's one of the first and most important things to learn about in, in the study of biology generally. The basic idea of homeostasis is, is balance. You could almost think of it like the Goldilocks principle. So our bodies are very highly tuned. They're very highly regulated systems, and they have exquisite mechanisms that have evolved over time to maintain that level of balance, to maintain that homeostatic set point that all of our cells want to be at, right? So the, so the idea is 
Um, we're warm blooded, for example, we want our body to be at a particular temperature because the physiology of our cells is optimal at a particular temperature. So you, you don't want things to be too warm. You don't want them to be too cold. If they get too warm, you want to bring it down. If they get too cold, you want to bring it up. Um, you could think of something like your, your blood, blood sugar levels, for example. You want them to be at a particular level, not too high, not too low. Um, your nervous system is the same way. You want your neurons, all of the cells in your brain and your central nervous system, you want them to be working in their optimal range. They don't want to be firing too much and be too noisy, and they don't want to be firing too little and getting too little information. So there are mechanisms that in each of those systems of the body, nervous system, circulatory system, digestive system, everything really, to keep things at their homeostatic set point, to keep them in that Goldilocks zone, so to speak. And the endocannabinoid system or the ECS is really the critical system that keeps things in balance in that way. And it does it inside of all of the other systems of the body, nervous system in the brain, um, digestive system, including your gut and stomach, um, circulatory system, and so on and so forth. And so the way it works is that the ECS, you can think of it as composed of three different types of components. One are certain specific cellular receptors called endocannabinoid receptors that sit on the cell membrane of cells all throughout the body. And they're sort of sensing different things um, in the environment. And one of the critical things that they're sensing are the levels and the presence of endogenous cannabinoids. And endogenous cannabinoids or endocannabinoids are simply cannabinoid compounds, certain types of chemical compounds that are a natural native part of the body, right? So endocannabinoids are things that are inside of your body naturally all the time. Whereas phytocannabinoids or plant cannabinoids are related compounds that come to us from, from cannabis or from external sources. So the ECS has these receptors, and there's two main types of receptors, um, although there are more than those two. And they're simply referred to as CB1 and CB2, cannabinoid receptor 1 and cannabinoid receptor 2. In general, the CB1 receptors are much more common in the brain and central nervous system. And CB2 receptors are much more common outside of the nervous system in, in the periphery, including the immune system. However, you can find both cells in, in both places. So you got both types of cells in the immune system, both types in the brain, but you got CB1 is much more common in the brain and CB2 is much more common in the immune system and the inflammatory um, response. So you've got these receptors. Just, Go yeah, ahead. Just to, just to clarify one thing um, with the CB1, when you're talking about in the periphery, that includes like the peripheral nervous system, right? As far as like yes, the it, nervous system of the gut or or other regions of the body. Yes. Although typically um, when I'm talking about CB1, CB2, and I say periphery, I'm, I'm meaning everything outside of the nervous system. So you've got the nervous oh, gotcha, system on gotcha. one hand, central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. And then you've got everything outside of that in the periphery. Um, and so that's what I mean when I say that. Um, and so in the nervous system, generally, CB1 is going to be much more prevalent, although you will still find CB2. And then outside of the nervous system, including in your immune system, CB2 tends to be much more prevalent, although you still have CB1 as well. Got it. Okay. So um, you've got your receptors, one and two. Um, and then you've got your endogenous cannabinoids. And the two major endogenous cannabinoids or endocannabinoids that you tend to hear about are anandamide and 2-AG. And so these are small signaling compounds, and they're made from fats. So they're made from lipids um, from the cell membrane, actually. Um, so they're much more like lipids or fats than they are like proteins or other types of small molecules. And the way that they interact with the receptors is sort of like um, it's a signaling mechanism. It's a feedback mechanism. Oftentimes what happens, we'll take the brain as an example. Um, so imagine two neurons in your brain, two brain cells talking to each other. So one of your brain cells sends out spikes or signals of electric biochemical electrical activity, and the second neuron listens to that. And so remember, if we think about the concept of homeostasis and the concept of balance or the Goldilocks principle, the, the neuron that's listening is going to be getting signals from the first neuron that's talking, so to speak. And if that neuron, that first neuron that's speaking is talking too much and sending too many signals to the second neuron, that second neuron is going to say, okay, this is a little too much. And it wants that second neuron to go back to its homeostatic baseline. It wants it to quiet down a little bit when it's too noisy. And the way that it tells that first neuron 
that it needs to quiet down is with an endogenous cannabinoid. So it'll actually release endogenous cannabinoids right then and there at that particular location at that particular point in time. And those endogenous cannabinoids will go backwards to that first cell. So the retrograde signals is the term that you hear there. They go back from the second cell to the first cell. They will bind to cannabinoid receptors. And on a neuron, that's going to tend to be the CB1 receptor, right? So the neuron, the second neuron will release an endocannabinoid. It goes back to the first neuron. It activates the CB1 receptor. And that tells the cell to quiet down and go back to where it was before. And so that is the essence of how that mechanism works. Um, something so sort of happening. Like a buffer system almost. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to think about it. Something starts happening too much. Um, that is sensed by one neuron in this case. An endocannabinoid is released. And through the CB1 receptor, in the case of the CNS, um, it's going to tell that first neuron to quiet back down and go back to where it was. And so it's this nice regulatory feedback loop that operates in the brain like that, but also by analogy, in an analogous way, it operates um, elsewhere. And it's really important to emphasize that this, this whole system is highly regulated. It is highly precise, both in space and in time, at least when it's operating in a healthy way, in its normal, natural way. So the endocannabinoids, they're not, they're not sort of released all the time. They're not circulating all the time. They're, they're made on demand. They're synthesized, made, and released at the time and the place where they're needed. And so it's a highly exquisite, highly regulated um, mechanism for maintaining homeostasis in the body. Um, and that's why it's so important. That's why you find it in almost every system of the body, because it doesn't matter if it's the brain or the immune system or, or another system of the body. You want that type of, of balancing and regulation all the time. Mm hmm. OK. And so not to get too far off topic, but you you alluded to something that really sparked my interest. So you say in a healthy functioning systems, I imagine there's people who are inherently um, have a system that may have like genetic malformations or genetic um, deficiencies that make the endocannabinoid system work less um, well, or poten potentially maybe some disease processes that may alter it? Um, yes. Um, you know, I don't know so much about some of those particular pathological conditions, but if the endocannabinoid system becomes misregulated, it is going to cause downstream problems. And that's, that's simply because, because this is a, a regulatory system. If that system is itself misregulated, it's going to have cascading effects where all of the systems that it is regulating are then going to have problems. So if, if the system that's maintaining balance gets out of whack, um, then things are really going to go out of balance. That's the basic idea. Gotcha. Okay. So let's zoom in a little bit more and think about our interrelationships with this system and how lifestyle, diet, herbal medicine, interacts, maybe the environment interacts with um, this system, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So the, the interaction between the environment and the endocannabinoid system is also important. One, one area that's worth talking about is exercise. So I think intuitively, we all understand that exercise is good. Um, it's healthy. You should be exercising regularly um, because it has a variety of health benefits. But one of the things that's interesting about exercise in the endocannabinoid system is how, how exercise affects it. So in general, when you engage in rigorous exercise, that will tend to increase levels of endogenous cannabinoids. So the one example that I'm familiar with is anandamide. So anandamide is one of the two major endocannabinoids in our ECS, as we discussed. And the word anandamide comes from, I believe, a Sanskrit word that means bliss. So people often refer to this as the, the bliss compound or the, the happy compound. Um, and that's partly because um, when, when anandamide levels are elevated, it tends to be correlated with better mood. It tends to be correlated with lower levels of anxiety. In fact, people who have um, genetic disorders or genetic mutations in their endocannabinoid system that cause higher um, levels of anandamide compared to normal have very low levels of both emotional and physical pain perception, which is really interesting. So higher anandamide levels are correlated with lower levels of anxiety um, and actually decreased ability to perceive physical pain 
there's there's actually a New York Times article people can Google that has to do with anandamide about a woman who had a very rare mutation that affected her endocannabinoid system. And she had much higher levels of anandamide compared to a normal person. And she essentially reported never feeling um, fear or anxiety almost at all in her entire life. And she actually mm -hmm. had um, deficiencies in pain perception, um, which can be dangerous, actually. Um, if you imagine not being able to sense physical pain, it can actually um, put you in dangerous situations. But this woman had an incredibly bright mood all of the time. She was almost, you could almost say she was pathologically happy, although that's, that's almost a contradiction because um, she should, certainly didn't view it as a pathology. Um, but the way that it connects to exercise is also interesting because in contrast to that condition, which was a genetic condition leading to higher anandamide levels, everyone can elevate their anandamide levels through exercise. Exercise tends to increase levels of the endocannabinoid called anandamide. And that's, that's thought to be responsible, for example, at least partially for the, the runner's high. So oftentimes if someone um, goes jogging for a long time or they engage in very rigorous running or or um, aerobic exercise, they get sort of this, this high, this mood elevation um, that is really blissful, and they describe it that way. And anandamide is thought to be responsible, or at least partly responsible, for inducing that state. So the exercise itself is leading to higher levels of the endogenous cannabinoid, anandamide, and that is probably having an impact on things like mood, anxiety, um, and potentially you know, related to that case, that genetic abnormality that I referenced, um, pain perception. So you can imagine, you know, you, you engage in rigorous exercise. And if you go hard enough, long enough, you actually put yourself in a state where you can go longer, um, potentially because your mood is elevated, potentially because you're not perceiving the, the pain or, or the, uh, the hardship of the exercise as much as you were under baseline conditions. So I guess the point is um, exercise is super important generally, but one of the things that it connects to is it can actually help elevate levels of endogenous cannabinoids. And so if people are interested in manipulating the levels of their endocannabinoids, one of the best ways you can do that is through exercise. Yeah, it's uh, another another good reason to exercise, right? And that's it's uh, it's amazing. And you know, I've never heard that explained before, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, and so then, you know, taking it from there. Other, you had mentioned to me when we were um, discussing things before we we spoke today that uh, nutrition also things that we eat interacts with the system as well. Yeah, and the thing there that I think is critical that in my experience most consumers don't understand. I think some do, but many don't. Is that um, cannabinoids? are lipophilic compounds. So they're fat soluble, they're, they're fatty compounds. So your endogenous cannabinoids are literally made out of fatty, um, fatty compounds that are natural in your body. And then the phytocannabinoids like THC and CBD and others are also fat soluble. So they're, think of them as greasy, right? They don't wanna be in water, they wanna be in oil or fat. And I think the important thing for medical patients and consumers to understand related to that fact is that the composition of your diet when you consume a cannabinoid orally is going to greatly impact its bioavailability and, and your body's ability to absorb it. And so in general, because these are fat-soluble compounds, eating them together with a high-fat diet is going to allow for much better absorption into your body than eating them with a low-fat diet or eating them on their own. So for example, if you're taking a capsule with THC or CBD or both, if you just have pure um, distillate or something like that, pure um, THC and CBD on its own, and you take that on an empty stomach, you're going to absorb much less of that compared to if you ate the equivalent amount of THC and CBD on a milligram basis together with, um, you know, a fatty meal mm -hmm. or, or inside of an oil, if it was mixed with like a fatty oil. So, you know, if you're eating, if you're eating 10 milligrams of THC or CBD inside of a high fat chocolate, or you're eating it with a meal that has a high fat content, you're actually going to absorb more of that um, THC or CBD than if you just eat it on an empty stomach. Um, and it has to do with the fat soluble nature of these compounds. Gotcha. Okay. Well, then of course there's um, the way to interact with phytomedicine. Um, and this is sort of a big topic to unpack in itself. And I think what I'd like to do to kind of go into this is, 
sort of start with some basics. Um, you know, what what is commonly known as like some of the colloquial terms and then what are some of the more medical or clinical terms of phytomedicine that's used to um, balance or influence the ECS? So um, we could maybe like start with start with uh, talking about first of all, like the differences between THC and CBD, and that's kind of a good place to launch off. Okay, yeah. So let's talk about those particular cannabinoids um, a little bit more, maybe the biology and how they're different. And then one of the things that I think connects to that that's important that people are asking about a lot these days is the idea of like pure compounds versus plant extracts and the entourage effect and how all of those things interact with each other. Um, but the major difference between THC and CBD, and these are the two most abundant, two most common plant cannabinoids that you find in cannabis products today, is that you know THC is the, it's the one that gets you high. So this is a psychoactive, psychotropic cannabinoid. Um, it has intoxicating effects. So if you consume THC, um, you're going to have intoxicating effects. It's going to affect things like short-term memory. Um, you're going to feel it in your head. You're going to feel it in your body. Um, most people understand that part. And I think most people also understand that CBD is very different. Um, even though it's similar chemically, the two compounds are, are very close to each other chemically. Those small differences between them lead to very large differences in how they impact the body. And mainly the difference is that CBD is not intoxicating but it is psychoactive. And the difference there is that, you know, an intoxicating compound like THC or like alcohol, it's going to have an impact on your ability to move your body, your ability to make decisions and things like that. So you wouldn't want to consume THC and go operate a motor vehicle, right? Because you're going to be potentially impaired. Um, whereas CBD is not intoxicating. It's really not going to have a negative impact as far as we know on your ability to to behave in normal ways. However, it is psychoactive and that's a common misconception. And the difference between something that's intoxicating and something that's psychoactive but not intoxicating is that something like CBD is going to affect mood. It can impact things like anxiety levels. That's actually one of its um, medical potential medical benefits. Um, and it will impact mood and cognition. However, it won't impact it in a way that leads to intoxication. And so that's an important point. Um, CBD will have psychoactive effects. Um, it can potentially affect things like anxiety if you ingest it at the right dose, but it will not be intoxicating. And that's because each of these compounds, even though they're pretty similar chemically, they're different enough that they're having very different effects on the endocannabinoid system and other receptor systems inside of the body. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we we also have these sort of subsets of, of um Phytomedicine medicine from cannabis. So you have like synthetic derivatives and then also hemp derived derivatives and then hybrids. Can you go into some of the differences when, of people who are maybe new to this or have heard these terms are very confused as kind of understand the differences between those different categories? Yes, um, that's a good question. Um, this is super important. A lot of people are asking about it. So the main difference between a synthetic compound or a purified compound and a hemp-derived extract or a plant extract is that in the synthetic in the synthetic version or the purified version, if you're talking about something like THC, for example, if you have purified THC, what that means is that what you're consuming is just THC. So there's nothing else present. It's THC all by itself. It's been synthesized from scratch or it's been highly purified in a laboratory, for example. And that can be different when you're comparing something like a plant extract. So if I were to take a plant extract that was THC dominant and compare that to a purified or synthetic version of THC, the difference is that although both contain THC potentially at the same exact levels, so maybe we're talking about 20 milligrams of THC, the synthetic version is 20 milligrams of THC all by itself, that's it. In a plant extract, you're gonna have that 20 milligrams of THC, but you're also probably gonna have other compounds present. It could be CBD, it could be other cannabinoids, it could be other terpenes or other compounds that you might hear about. And that's really the main difference. So in a plant extract, you're gonna have your major compound typically together with small levels of minor compounds that are coming with it. And the reason that can be relevant potentially 
is through something called the entourage effect, which um, is a very interesting idea, a very interesting hypothesis in the world of plant medicine. And the idea there is that when you have a pure compound, you could have different effects compared to if you have a compound together with a group or an entourage of other compounds at the same time. So if you have something like THC present with other minor cannabinoids and terpenes, you could get a different physiological effect compared to the compound all by itself. And that's the main difference. And I think it's important to stress that the entourage effect is, is really a hypothesis. So at least when we're talking about sort of um, the medical benefits that have been studied in a human clinical setting. So we don't know a lot about what the true entourage effects are that have bona fide medical medical effects that have been, you know, tested and proven in a clinical setting. However, we do know that there are lots of interactive effects between certain compounds in nature, and there are interactive effects between things like THC and CBD. And, and that's probably important to talk about as well. So I'll do that next. So because THC and CBD have very different physiological effects, um, the reason that that is true comes down to the way they interact with things like the CB1 receptor as one major example. So if you imagine your CB1 receptor, which is one of those major receptors of the ECS, when THC binds to that receptor, it's basically activating it. So it behaves similarly to things like anandamide in that way. Um, it binds the receptor, it activates it, and that, that results in a certain set of physiological reactions in your cell. Now, CBD also can interact with that receptor, but it does it in a very, very different way. So it doesn't fit into the receptor like THC does. It fits in in a very different way. And instead of activating that receptor, what it actually does is it essentially blocks or changes the way that THC and endocannabinoids and other activators of that receptor actually happen. So if you, if you have CBD bind to the CB1 receptor, it actually makes it much more difficult for THC or other compounds to activate that receptor. And so you can imagine for that reason why there would be interactive effects between THC and CBD. And that's partly why, you know, consuming something that's THC only versus CBD only versus um, a balance between both THC and CBD is going to have a very different effect for you um, if you consume, if you consume that type of, of product. So it's consuming something that's one-to-one -one THC CBD versus something that's only THC or only CBD, it's going to result in different effects and it's going to feel very different because there's this sort of interaction between THC and CBD at the CB1 receptor due to the differences in their chemistry. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I think something that illustrates that, and maybe you can comment on this or confirm that, is that, you know, in emergency room settings where someone's had maybe like a highly toxic dose of THC and has some hyperemesis, um, which is like a cyclical vomiting problem because they've overconsumed THC. Sometimes they'll use CBD as a um, antagonist or to kind of calm down the THC receptors. Oh, wow. I didn't know that they were actively doing that in, in that type of situation. Um, but it, it potentially makes sense in theory because um, as you mentioned, you know, so CBD um, is, is the technical term would be uh, a negative allosteric modulator. Um, or an antagonist of CB1 receptor agonists. So the non-technical way of thinking about that is that CBD affects the CB1 receptor in a way that makes it less sensitive or less able to be, be activated by things like THC or normal activators. Um, so that idea um, is really powerful uh, and, and that interaction is really important. I will say, I think one important clarification is, is that THC is not really toxic from a toxicology perspective, um, although you can overdose on it. And so what that means is if you take too much C THC, you can have a negative reaction, um, certainly. So you can overdose in the sense of, you know, going into a high anxiety state um, or panicking, um, having your heart race, um, and those are all negative things but it's not actually um, toxic to your cells in the same way that like something truly poisonous would be. Right. Right. And uh, yeah. So, I mean, the, the hyperemesis I think is the one clinical condition that I've heard of at least, or it's talked about a lot in medicine of people who've maybe taken too much THC. They'll end up going to the emergency room with vomiting problems. And um, usually they're able to turn that around, um, you know, quite, quite uh, well. Yeah, I think they are able to turn that around pretty easily. And um, 
I'm not too familiar with the clinical details on what mm -hmm. the underlying cause of that hyperemesis syndrome is, but I do know that you tend to see it in people that have been consuming very high doses of THC for a long time. And so I would speculate that perhaps what's going on there is, you know, taking chronic high doses of a phytocannabinoid can, for a long time at least, can potentially um, put your en en endocannabinoid system out of whack. So mm -hmm. if you're perturbing the ECS too much for too long, that system itself becomes misregulated, and then you get this, this pathological condition. Now, at the same time, I think if you stop or you abstain from cannabis, um, that can resolve itself. And I would imagine that when you're, when you're talking to a physician who has someone in that condition, um, they're going to want to treat, treat the condition acutely. And then probably the advice would be to abstain from consuming cannabis for some period of time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'd like you to maybe along this line of uh, we've been talking about just to kind of clear up, clear up some misconceptions. Can you just tell us like if someone purchases hemp versus going uh, like a hemp derived uh, CBD or hemp derived yeah, basically CBD product versus going into a medical dispensary with, you know, sort of a medical authorization. What, what are they, what are they walking away with? What's the difference between those two sort of derivatives? Yep. So let's imagine, you know, two products on the shelf and one of them is a hemp derived CBD product. And typically what that means is that that product contains CBD from a whole plant extract. So um, some processor somewhere has taken a hemp plant, the literal plant, and they have um, taken the bud, the, the flower of that plant, um, typically, you know, what, what you would think of as marijuana or cannabis. They take one of those nugs from a hemp plant and they're extracting the essential oil from that plant. And in a hemp plant or a CBD dominant plant, that essential oil is going to have predominantly CBD, but because it's coming from a plant, a whole plant, um, that extract is also going to contain a variety of other compounds, including minor cannabinoids, like trace levels of THC, or even other cannabinoids that you may have heard about, CBG, um, CBC, others that we can talk about, um, typically at lower levels, much lower levels. And it's going to contain things like terpenes, which are compounds that you, you might hear about in a dispensary as well. And those are the two main classes of compounds found in the whole plant. So those extracts are going to have all of the above. They're going to have, if it's a hemp plant, high levels of CBD. They're going to have at least trace levels of other cannabinoids like THC, CBG, or other phytocannabinoids. And they're going to have um, potentially um, good levels of terpenes. And those are the aromatic compounds that are responsible for the aroma of cannabis. So if you actually smell the flower or you smell the extracted oil, what you're largely smelling there are the terpenes. And those are also potentially important because they have many interesting pharmacological properties as well. And some of them potentially have health benefits related to the biological impact that they can have. Although it's important to say that we don't know a whole lot about all of those interactions or what those potential benefits are, but that's what you're going to get in those whole plant hemp derived extracts. It's going to be CBD if it's coming from hemp together with a whole entourage of other compounds, including trace levels of THC and those terpenes. And so that's different from what you're going to get in um, something like a isolate compound or an isolate product, I should say. So when you see something like CBD isolate, or you see a highly purified or synthesized version of CBD, what you're getting there typically is a crystalline or highly pure version of CBD, and it does not also have all of those other compounds present. And so the difference is that, and whether or not that's a critical difference or an impactful difference for the, the medicinal um, effects is largely unknown. Many people believe that the whole plant extract is going to have medicinal effects that might not be seen in that purified compound, but we really don't have a lot of good clinical evidence to know specifically what's happening there. Although it is entirely possible that that entourage effect um, that you're going to get from a hemp-derived extract is going to behave differently than it than what you're going to see from a purified um, a purified product. And so I would say for a medical patient. Um, I would do two things. One, I would definitely consult with your physician about whether you might want to try one or the other um, when it comes to a, a hemp-derived extract or a purified CBD product. Um, and then I would do some experimentation. Um, I would try one. I would try the other and see how it, see how it actually affects you. Um, and, and that's probably the best route to go with. The last thing that I would say is 
you know, although the entourage effect is very interesting, and I believe that there probably are entourage effects that that are real, um, and I think that's plausible, most of the medical research that's been done on CBD, at least in human clinical settings, has been done using very high doses of pure CBD. So most of what we know about the, the bona fide medical effects on CBD in humans come from studies that are using purified CBD. Um, so the pure CBD um, can be effective. However, it tends, the, the, what we really know about comes from very high doses of CBD. And it's not clear that it's economical for most patients to, to purchase CBD at those high doses. And so the last thing that I would leave off with there is that it connects to our earlier part of the conversation when we were talking about things like diet and bioavailability of these things. Um, it's super important when you're consuming these cannabinoids, especially if you're consuming them orally, you're eating them in a capsule or in an edible, to think about the fact that they're fat soluble and they're gonna get absorbed much more readily with a high fat diet. Um, and I think that's a really important thing that I just wanna repeat for a lot of the medical patients, especially, because if you're looking to CBD or other cannabinoids, to have um, medical benefits for you, you're gonna wanna look at how you're consuming that. And if you're consuming it orally, you're eating it. You wanna be, you wanna be consuming that with a high fat diet, I think, because it's just gonna allow for better absorption. The evidence I think is relatively clear on that point. Mm -hmm. Thanks for pointing that out, appreciate that. So I'm gonna push on this just a little bit more because um, you know, there's, there's experiences, like if you go on Leafly and you're researching, so a good strain of, for migraines. And a lot of times you'll, you'll see, okay, this particular strain has one-to-one -one CBD to THC. Now that can't possibly be from, from a hemp plant. So what is that coming from? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think we need to talk about a couple of things there that will help consumers or help patients that are listening actually go out and answer that question on, on their own through their own research. So one is we have to talk about the major types chemotypes is what we call them technically, chemical phenotypes of cannabis plants. And then we want to talk about the Leafly Cannabis Guide, which is a new way that Leafly has visualized the chemical composition of strains and products for cannabis for consumers. And then if we tie those things together, it gives people, it gives consumers a map or a guide by which they can go and look for and compare different cannabis strains and products based on their actual chemistry. And so that's pretty exciting. And so if we talk about the major types of cannabis from a chemical perspective, um, there are three big ones that you tend to talk about. And we've got some really good articles on Leafly in the science and the health sections that you can read about this in more depth. But the three major types of cannabis that you want to think about are THC dominant, CBD dominant, and balanced THC CBD chemotypes. And so THC dominant cannabis is the typical, typical cannabis that you would hear about or think about when you talk about marijuana and the psychoactive sort of classical effects of cannabis. It's got high levels of THC and it's got very low levels of CBD and other minor cannabinoids. So it's going to have strong psychoactive, strong intoxicating effects. Now on the opposite side of the spectrum, you've got CBD dominant cannabis. All hemp is CBD dominant cannabis, meaning its primary cannabinoid is going to be CBD which is non-intoxicating, and it's going to have very low levels of THC and other cannabinoids, and that's why it's non-intoxicating. So some strains are CBD dominant, and they've got those high CBD levels. Some are THC dominant, and they've got those high THC levels. And then there's another group of strains that are actually in the middle, and we call those balanced strains. They tend to have um, a pretty good balance, one-to-one, two-to-one, maybe three-to-one of both THC and CBD. And so for that reason, they're going to have psychoactive intoxicating effects, but not as strong as a THC dominant strain would have um, and very different from a CBD dominant strain. So in a balanced strain, you're kind of getting the best of both worlds in a certain sense. You're going to get the um, THC effects. You're going to get those psychoactive intoxicating effects, which many people find to be pleasant because you're going to get that euphoria um, and you're going to get that experience that you might be looking for if that's what you want. But you're also going to have some CBD there together with the THC. And that CBD is going to mitigate some of the effects of THC. So the, the effects are going to be much more mild on the psychoactive side. Um, and you're going to have probably less of a chance of getting some of those THC-dependent side effects, including things like the munchies or hunger. Um, so if, you, if you're looking to have a lighter psychoactive experience, if you're looking to have fewer side effects that are strongly associated with THC, like the munchies, you might look to a balanced strain that contains both THC and CBD. 
And then if you're looking just for CBD or you want to avoid those intoxicating psychoactive effects, that's when you would look to something like hemp or a CBD dominant hematype of cannabis. And so what we've done at Leafly is we've sort of taken all of that knowledge, all of that research that's out there, and you can go read about it in our content section, but now you can actually see it with your eyes in our strain database um, because we've come up with a new cannabis guide that actually visualizes those differences in chemistry for all of the major popular strains that are out there. So if you go to um, a strain page today on Leafly, what you're going to see from most strains is a colorful um, way, literally, of seeing the average chemistry associated with each of those strains. And so we use shape and color to depict the average levels of the major cannabinoids and terpenes that tend to be found in the strain that has that name. So for something that's THC dominant, we could talk about something like um, gelato, for example. Gelato is a very popular um very much trending uh, THC dominant strain right now. And the THC is depicted with diamonds. They're pointy and they're really elongated for gelato because it tends to have high levels of THC. So if you go to that strain page, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see a depiction of a strain that has diamonds for THC and it does not have any CBD, which we use um, a circle to depict. So if you go look at a strain like Charlotte's Web, for example, Charlotte's Web is a very famous CBD dominant strain. Um, in fact, it was named after a young girl named Charlotte who recently passed away, and she was a major inspiration for the CBD movement. Um, and so uh, a lot of people were talking about her and that strain and her legacy recently. And if you go to that strain page, Charlotte's Web, what you'll see is a depiction of that strain that has lots of circles. And so that stands for CBD. And as you're looking at the strain pages on Leafly, you can start to look at these strains one after another, look at them side by side, and you start to notice differences in the shapes and the colors that you see, and that's telling you about differences in their chemistry. And I guess one more to talk about would be an example of a balanced strain that has both THC and CBD. So um, a good example there is something like Harlequin. So the strain Harlequin is one of the most popular balance strains that's out there. And if you go to the strain page on Leafly, what you're going to see is a mix of both diamonds and circles, which is depicting that mixture of both THC and CBD. And so if you're a consumer, as you go to these strain pages and you're doing your research, if you start to familiarize yourself with the shapes and the colors, and you start to familiarize yourself with the underlying connection to the cannabinoids and the terpenes that that visual system has, what you're going to be able to do is really... Um, really take your research to another level and take your ability to compare and contrast different chemistries found in these strains and these products to a whole new level when you're doing your shopping online. Um, so I would encourage people to do that um, because one thing that's super, super interesting and very amazing um, and very functionally relevant to consumers are these major differences between the strains and the products that are out there in terms of their chemistry. Um, because if you have very different chemistry, you're going to have a very different effect. And so figuring out which strains, which products have the right chemistry for you and your body is, is critical. It's critical if you're a recreational consumer and you want to find the right experience in terms of the psychoactive effects. And it's super critical for a medical patient if you want to find the right outcome for you and whatever the condition is that you're treating. Because a different chemistry is going to have a very different effect on, on whatever that is. That is great. And that's a good place to pause with our kind of overview before we go into some specific medical concerns like um, GI problems. This concludes part one of our conversation with Nick Jacomez about CBD and its applications in medicine and in health. In the next episode, we're going to go into a detailed conversation about the clinical applications and specifically talk about its benefits in anxiety and in gut disorders. So tune in. We'll be back soon with part two of this most interesting conversation. Make sure to subscribe to our channel so you get the latest updates on all our episodes. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The One Thing Podcast.
This is the One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. On the One Thing Podcast, we bring together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that can unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please subscribe to our podcast so you can stay up to date on the latest information in these areas. And now to today's episode. This is the One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. And now to today's episode. Cognitive decline is one of the most concerning aspects of aging and is a major cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. As of 2014, the CDC stated that in populations older than 65 years of age, there was an estimated 5 million people suffering with dementia. This number is projected to be 14 million by the year 2060. There's a laundry list of ideas to prevent cognitive decline. However, few really address the root cause. My guest today is Dr. Diane Goodenow, a neuroscientist and inventor with ProDome Sciences. I was introduced to Dr. Goodenow by a mutual colleague, and he really struck a chord with me when he told me about plasmalogens. As we discussed dementia and its root causes, he shared how these unique chemicals of the membrane of our brain called plasmalogens can become deficient and that they may be one of the key links to understanding neurodegeneration and cognitive decline. In today's episodes, we discuss plasmalogens, what they are, how they are made, how they help our heart, brain, and immune system, and nervous tissue, and how they can be measured and potentially restored. Please help me in welcoming my guest, Dr. Diane Goodnow. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Dr. Diane Goodnow. I hope you enjoyed learning about plasmalogens as much as I did. I'm excited to be offering the test for plasmalogens in my clinic now, and also offering, um, carrying the line of plasmalogen supplements. Um, if you need more information on that, please get in touch with me, as I think this is a very worthwhile pursuit, especially if you're at high risk for dementia, um, heart disease, and have immune deficiencies. So thank you again for tuning in. Please share this episode with your colleagues and friends and continue to listen. We really appreciate it. Um, it's been exciting to bring these most interesting guests to you and share information that may hopefully unlock some of the puzzles that you're trying to solve in your own health, in the health of your patients, and the health of your loved ones. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.